Well, welcome everybody. This is uh, the first week of leaving a legacy that lasts. And uh, tonight's topic is parenting profiles lighten up or tighten up. Now, we've been talking a little bit about birth order in the past, but I am curious tonight, just based on birth order, we're going to see if there's any correlation between your parenting profile and your birth order. Where are the firstborns again? Look at the firstborns. If you look around, they're the ones that generally have a pen in their hand, and they're hoping that I'll complete that entire booklet that you have. Where are the babies of the family? We're just glad you found the room. <laughs> Perfect. And where are the middleborns? Who cares about you anyway? Um, oh, boy, boy, boy. You know, as we think about parenting, let me tell you a little bit about my family and why I do these things. Uh, my name is John Irwin. I'm the interim pastor here at Agora Bible Fellowship. But for many, many years, I was a family pastor both in churches in Minnesota and California. And one of the things that uh, uniquely qualifies me to do this seminar, number one, I have gray hair and I have earned it. I have a 28-year-old daughter who's been married for six years. Her name's Katie. Next week, you'll see a picture of her. And uh, we are expecting our first grandchild in one month from this week, Lord willing. I also have a 25-year-old son who recently graduated from college. He was on the seven-year plan, and that is a historic event in the life of the Irwin family. So I've raised two kids, and I'll just make this disclaimer right now. You are never going to be done parenting. You think, oh, great, I can't wait till the kids get out of preschool. I can't wait till the kids get out of elementary school. Oh, they're finally in junior high. Fantastic, they're driving, or not so much. Uh, then they're finally off to college. And I find that for most parents, they think the job is over at a certain age, and they're not. But it is interesting as we think about parenting, um, how easy it is for us to kind of be so uptight when the kids are the first kids. Now, this just, um, how many have one child right now? Raise your hand. You have one child only. Okay. How many have two? Okay. How many have three? How many have four? How many have five? How many have six? How many needs a bus? Yeah. So, the interesting thing for those of you who are single parent, you know, you've got one child. It's so interesting. We have two. But how things change. When um, you have your first baby, how about your clothes? You begin wearing maternity clothes as soon as your OBGYN confirms your pregnancy. Second baby, you wear your regular clothes for as long as possible. Your third baby, your maternity clothes are your regular clothes. How about the baby's name? First baby, you pour over baby name books and practice pronouncing and writing combinations of all your favorites. Your second baby, someone has to name their kid after your grand aunt Mavis, right? Might as well be you. Third baby, you open the name in a book, you close your eyes, you see where your finger falls, and Bamaldo, perfect. Preparing for birth, first baby, you practice your breathing religiously, didn't you ladies? Second, you don't bother practicing because you remember that the last time breathing didn't do a thing. Third baby, you ask for an epidural in about the eighth month. How about the baby's clothes and everything? You pre-wash your newborn's clothes, color coordinate them, fold them neatly in the baby's little bureau. Second baby, you check to make sure that the clothes are clean and discard only the ones that have the darkest stains. And third baby, hey, boys can wear pink. It's okay. Worries. 
First baby, at the first sign of a distress, a whimper, a frown, you pick up that baby. The second baby, you pick up the baby when she wails and threatens to wake up your firstborn. Third baby, you teach your three-year-old how to rewind the mechanical swing. How about going out? The first time you leave your baby with a sitter, you call home five times. Second baby, just before you walk out the door, you remember to leave a number where you can be reached. Third baby, you leave instructions for the sitter to call only if she sees blood. And then at home, finally, first baby, you spend a good bit of every day just gazing at that baby. The second baby, you spend a bit of every day watching to be sure that your older child isn't squeezing, poking, or hitting the baby. Your third child, you spend a little bit of every day hiding from the baby. So having multiple kids does probably change a little bit about how we think about parenting. And, and I remember when Katie was born. I was a youth pastor in Huntington Beach. It was in 1984. <clears throat> now, if you remember what happened in 1984 in L.A., it was the Olympic Games. And during that, I, there was all these people having I, the official sponsor of this or that for the Olympic Games, right? And so I had this crazy idea, why can't my baby, my firstborn, be the official baby of the 1984 Olympic Games? And I was crazy enough to start calling the Olympic Organizing Committee. I got all the way to the director of communications for the entire U.S. Olympic Committee before he said, who are you? And what are you asking? I said, I think she should be the, unofficial ba- or the official baby of the 1984 Olympic Games. He goes, well, why should she be the official baby? Because nobody else has called for it, have they? You got me there, sir. So can she at least be the unofficial baby? He said, whatever you want, and he hung up on me. So um, that was the time period. It was a great time to have kids. My wife had to have a C-section, and I was in the hospital. She was in the hospital for five days back in that day. Today you have a C-section, and they get you out in like 24 hours, 48 hours, and I remember, 48, is it 40? Four days. So you get a little more time, one less day. And um, I got to hold Katie and whatnot, and we'll tell you more about that later. So we're talking tonight about parenting profiles. And um, the, the subtitle is Lighten Up or Tighten Up. Now, in your notes, if, you're gonna t- if you'll turn to page, what, four, there are some pretests. Now, a little bit later, we're gonna have you actually take a test. There are a couple of inventories, and I realize firstborn, some of you are going, oh, if I take it, then my husband can, or I can't, or whatever. So you can take it together, but the bottom line is, you're gonna to have to decide tonight, wh- who do you think you really are? And so I've given you some questions uh, in that booklet that you can kinda of look through. Um, one of the things uh, that some of you are kinda of the platoon parent self-test, and we'll talk uh, what that is, but that's kind of the dictator that I'm going to, platoon or dictator interchangeable. Yes? That's on page one. Then on page two is the pushover parent, and that would be what I would call the doughboy. Some of you have to, are old enough to remember the Pillsbury doughboy. If you don't have a booklet, we have, I think, someone who has booklets for you, and there might be one left or two. And then uh, some of you go beyond dictator or platoon parent. You're the hyper parent or helicopter parent, that's on page three. But what we'll be dealing with tonight primarily is page four, and then we'll have some questions for you to talk through, either as a couple or if we have time together on page five. But we'll primarily be on this page, we'll have some PowerPoint 
that you can follow along. If you miss any of this tonight, it'll be on the website along with the video. So, a little bit later, now some of you are wanting to multitask, you're gonna try to take this test while I'm speaking, but go ahead and turn to page four, and we'll jump right in. And one of the things I like to do is anytime I speak, I'd like to, to pray, and I like to give our time to the Lord. So if you'd bow your heads, I'd like to pray for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity to teach and to talk about parenting. Lord, we know that kids are a blessing from the Lord, and so we just thank you for the blessing of crying children, for the birth of children, for healthy children, for the fact that we could just be here tonight in this place and talk together. So I ask that you would help us to not be educated beyond our obedience, that as we hear that we would apply in Jesus' name, amen. All right, a little overview. As we go through this chart together, I'm always gonna start in the first column, which is the doughboy column. Then we're gonna go to the third column, which is the dictator column, and then we'll end each section with the doctor column. Now you say, why did I go with those three ideas? Well, first of all, I think everybody knows what a dictator is. And some of us as parents tend to lean towards more control orientation. We'll talk about that personality type. Some of us are doughboys. We're kind of pushovers. We're, we're kind of easy going. Our kids got us wrapped around our little finger and they're like two, right? And then some of us are somewhere in the middle and I just call that the doctor. And the reason I call the middle column the doctor is because I think all of us would like in our parenting style to ultimately be a doctor. And I want to ask you a question. When you're dealing with a really good doctor, what are they like? Give me a little feedback and just say it loud. I'll repeat it. They listen well. What else? A really good doctor. They ask questions. In fact, that's one of the most important things. They may be super smart, but if they don't ask the right questions, they don't know what your problem is. So they listen well. They ask questions. What else? They have great bedside manner. They could have a million patients stacked up, but somehow they make you feel like, you're the only person on the planet. They're not checking their watch, not looking past you. They don't have the proverbial nurse knock on the door about 40 seconds into your examination. What else? If you think about what makes a really great doctor, you have the characteristics of what makes a really good parent. Now the problem is, for most of us, to be a parent, we took zero schooling. We didn't go to college, much less med school and, and fellowships and internships, you got married and somewhere along the line you had a kid. Some of you maybe had a kid and then got married. However it happened for you, most of us had zero preparation to be parents. You might have gotten a little talk from your dad about, hey, 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 you know, it's great to get married. But, and maybe, maybe, only maybe if you had an unbelievably tight relationship with your dad or mom, did they even prepare you for getting married and they Maybe you got the proverbial sex talk somewhere along in your life. But I'm guaranteeing you, most of us had no plan, no parent who was very intentional telling us, hey, this is what you can expect. I know my parents didn't. And in fact, my, my dad's a World War II dad. You know, he grew up in that uh, builder era. And I think he just figured, hey, the kid's getting good grades in school. He seems to make good choices. I like who he married, and I'm sure the kids will turn out just fine. And there was no, I had no passing of any kind of spiritual baton to me on the spiritual side, and I certainly didn't get any kind of real instruction other than watching my parents and saying, 
hmm, when I have kids, and maybe you did the same thing, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that, or oh, that was good, I want to remember that. So even by a show of hands, how many of you say, hey, your parents were great role models for you, and you saw that in them as far as your parenting? Very few parents, now this is, this is interesting, very few will raise your hands. How many of you said, I learned what not to do from my parents? This will not be on the tape, no one can see it. Yeah. You see, most of us, if we have anything, we have negative experiences with our own parents, and now we're a parent, and we have no model. Now think about this in the Bible, for instance. Do you have anywhere, and we'll just stay with the Old Testament, Anywhere in the Old Testament, you would put up, this is the model of the two-parent intact family that was not dysfunctional. Where do we find that test in the Old Testament? Think about nearly every family in the Old Testament was whacked. I mean, we're talking whacked. Let's just go through a, a little, uh, just a little overview. Let's start with the first family. You got Adam and Eve they come out of the chute with two boys, Cain and Abel, right from the dawn of time. You have sibling rivalry. It escalates into murder. First family, we got, you know, a death row convict right out of the chute, all right? Let's go a little farther. How about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Let's just go with Abraham. What's his problem in life as a, as, as a man, for instance? He has a problem admitting he's married. Everywhere he goes, oh, this is my sister, now, we understand, because she is smoking hot, and you know, don't want the Pharaoh taking my wife, so she's my sister. That gets him in all kinds of trouble, all right? Uh, Abraham, let's just go to Jacob. What's his issue? Well, he's got uh, how many wives, and how many concubines, and how many kids? We know at least 12, and plus the daughters. And what is his problem? He has one, the 11th kid born. What's, what's Jacob's problem with his son, Joseph? He shows a little what? Favoritism. All right, talk about spoiling a kid, and we won't get into his little tunic and cults of many colors, but can you see, you go through the entire Old Testament, there's not one great example of an intact two-parent family that we can say, hey, this is how we should model our families after. And I think there'd be a reason why. Because the Lord knew that we'd be parenting our kids sometime in this millennia, and he knew if he elevated this family as the model that we would be discouraged the entire rest of our parenting careers because no one, no one has a perfect family. Now some of you who tend to be on the dictator side are gonna muscle up and you're gonna make sure your kids are perfect and they will toe the line and they will do what you say they should do. And I gotta tell you, the research tells us that if you take an authoritarian style not authoritative, authoritarian style, that you have an 87% chance that you're gonna push your kid off the deep end of the pool. And by that I mean, you wanna produce a rebellious kid, be authoritarian and controlling, dogmatic, judgmental, and legalistic. You say, that sounds like churches I've visited before. Well, I hope you know that at our church, that's not our style. We're not gonna be dogmatic, we're not gonna be legalistic. We're not gonna be controlling. What we believe is that the word grace ought to be applied to how you do parenting as well. So with that as a little backdrop, let's jump into this. And I wanna suggest in our first slide, is this your family right here? 
Is this it? Is this what your image is? Of, this is what I thought growing up. I, I wanted Ward and June and Beaver, uh, Cleaver. Now, here's the problem. Some of you are worried about this, this second slide. You're worried about this happening in your family. If I don't hold the line, I'm going to have kids looking like this. I've got to hold the line here. And so let's take a look at, at our approach. First of all, the doughboy. The doughboy. And I, I want to suggest this, that when we think about the doughboy, we think about the approach. It's do as you please. It, it's non-directive, and it's wishy-washy, all right? And that's, that's the basic approach if you tend to be that kind of parent. If you are, uh, and you do that because you figure that's the way I can be my child's best friend. We'll talk about your relationship in a bit. Now, the other side is dictator, but the dictator does stuff like this. Check out this slide. You're going to get your way with this kid. Now, somehow this kid has gotten the chair over his head. I don't know how he's done that. And we're going to extricate. And I find dictator parents are always extricating themselves out of situations with their kids. They're so controlling, but man, it seems like everything doesn't go according to their plan. Now, I want to give you a verse for the, for the dictator parent. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children to wrath. One of the reasons dictator parents exasperate their kids and their kids get mad and there's conflict is because the over-controlling parent can't let go. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So the, the dictator approach is do as I say. It's always directive. And they tend to be reactionary. They tend to be reactionary. Now, some of you are saying, I'm not always like that. I'm only like that when I'm what? Tired, hungry, under pressure, overworked, or overcommitted. Well, that describes your life most weeks about 75% of the time. So you say, I'm only 75% of the time am I a dictator. Now, the problem in the dictator approach is you say, my kid's got to follow me. Well, what if you were this kind of parent? Check out this slide. There, that's mean. Look at it. They're following their dad or their little mom blindly there. And so when we're dogmatic, kids fall through the cracks because they will find a place where there's grace when there's acceptance. Now, my mom is no longer alive. Bless her soul. But she tended to be a dictator parent. My dad was the doughboy parent. So you can imagine what kind of family I grew up with. Now, I'll give you one other fact. My sister was eight years older than I was, so I was that oops baby, like we can't have any more kids, and boom, my, my sister's eight years old, they have a kid, and, and you gotta understand something. My, my sister was, I'm sure, like your kids, just so stinking compliant and obedient. You just wanted to pinch her little cheek. She was so good. Oh, I'm telling you. Here's how they disciplined my sister. You can be Patty. Patty, we're very disappointed in your behavior. Mommy and Daddy, I don't know what we're going to do. So disappointed. I mean, they wouldn't raise their voice. They'd have that little whimper look. And here's my sister. She goes, <laughs> oh, sorry, mommy, daddy. 
I won't ever do it again. I mean, all they did is looked at her, and they just said that little manipulative, we're so disappointed. Actually, that's a true statement. It doesn't always have to be manipulative. So they, I'm telling you, if they would have only had one child, they should have quit while they were ahead. They could have written the book, How You Two Can Raise Perfect Kids, because they had the perfect kid. Now, we'll talk next week about discipline, whether you spank or don't spank, and what age should you spank, or should you quit spanking, or what's the best way to discipline. I'm pretty sure they like barely looked at her. I'm not even sure if they ever really spanked her for anything. So I come along eight years later, and they go, Johnny, we're very disappointed in your attitude. I'm about six years old, and I didn't say these words, but I said as much, well, you better learn how to deal with it. I'm telling you, the Board of Education met the seat of my understanding so many times. And, you know, I was so smart. All right, John, bend over. Or no, they wouldn't say bend over. They had to start saying, they said, grab your ankles, which was supposed to be like this. Well, one time I just lifted my leg up and grabbed my ankle. Dad didn't go over with my dad. And so they had this very contrasting parenting style, one more directive, but my mom would make idle threats. So that's one thing about dictators. Oftentimes, they make idle threats that they cannot back up. If you come to our final session, which is gonna be on a Sunday morning, I'm gonna tell you about the vacation from you know where because of a driving experience I had when my kids were 12 and 10. I'm just gonna leave it there because it is every man's vacation. You have to come back in week four. All right, now, if you're the doctor on the other hand, it's live as I live, it's modeling, it's action-oriented. It's action-oriented. And so we've already identified a good doctor has, is smart, it's got, he's got good uh, bedside matter, he's, he's, he gives you time, he gives you eye contact. All those things are hopefully true if you're taking that middle ground approach. Now, be careful, because your kids are watching you, and if they're watching you, you could turn out like this, family, right here. And so, you just never know how your kids will turn out. They are watching you. They are watching everything. Now, I'm gonna tell this story again in about four weeks for the rest of the church, but I'll give you a sneak peek of the same story. So this idea of your kids watching you, you're modeling that behavior as a parent, so Katie's four, John Daniel's 18 months old. We're going to our favorite breakfast place in Southern California. It's the Harbor House Cafe in Seal Beach, just north of Huntington Beach. You know, their omelets can serve, you know, a small third world country. All the surfers go there and there's no parking, right? So here's what happens. You gotta get out and get the parking, get your name on the list. So we let John Daniel, who's 18 months old, and, and Cheryl get out of the car. Cheryl's my wife and they go get on the list and go, you know, try to, get on the, the wait list. Katie and I are now going to spy out the land to find a parking spot. So we're driving up and down the parking lot trying to, um, to, uh, to find that parking spot and sure, sure enough, um, I see one. Now it's a little difficult because um, I see that this car is backing out and going that way and going this way. So I turn my left hand blinker on, right? to signal that I'm gonna take this spot. So they back out and go this way. Before I can turn left, two college girls in a Volkswagen VW convertible come whipping in and they take my spot. Now there's a biblical expression, the joy of the Lord is not my strength at that point. I am, yea, thus verily, ticked off. 
I am upset. I was possessing the land. It's my parking spot. And so as I drive by them in incredulity, I look at them, I go, you jerks, you took my parking spot. Now you gotta check out their blonde surf chicks. They go like, dude, this guy's like seriously crusty. Whoa. You know, and they're like, get a grip, dude. You're like, what's wrong with you? You know, stalker, weirdo. You know, and you can see them give me the crusty look. I give them the crusty look and I don't even think of it. And I'm just like, oh. So however it goes down, we're now coming back down that same aisle. I don't know why they are not already in the restaurant. I'm looking the other way this time. We're driving right by that car. And as I'm slowly going by, without any fanfare, four-year-old Katie rolls down the window, <laughs> puts her little hands on her hips, puts her head out the window and said, you jerks, you took my daddy's parking spot. <laughs> and of course, I used all three names for her at that point. Katie, Marie, Irwin, because she's in trouble, right? What are you, and as for, I couldn't even get the words out because you saw this little whimper, a little chin quiver, and you could see her head spinning. I'm only doing what daddy had just done. If you're gonna be a parent, you, you know this, your kids are watching you. So if you're gonna be a doctor, if you're gonna be a doughboy, you're gonna be a dictator, your kids are following your example. Now what's the attitude? And do this, draw a line between attitude and expectations. Make two fill-ins on that second blank there. Just draw a line all the way across. Well, first at the attitude and then the expectation. First of all, the attitude. The doughboy attitude is, I guess you're right, I must be wrong. They just cave instantly, I, I must be wrong. The uh, dictator attitude is, I'm always right, and you're always wrong. Now let's pause there for a moment. Uh, the doughboy is, I must be wrong, you must be right. The dictator is, I'm always right, you're always wrong. I wanna ask you a question. How many of you, when you're in a conversation with your children, believe that you are right? Now, it's fair. I think nearly everyone should be raising our hands at this point. This does not mean you're a dictator. How many believe that you are usually right? Of course you're right. They are clueless, right? But we don't want to say it that way, right? And so, generally speaking, you are right. But here's a little phrase to remember. It is not enough to be right. You've got to be redemptive in how you communicate with your kids. You say, my kids don't respect me. I say to you, do you respect them? They're two. It starts when they're two, when they're three, when they're four. And there's little ways we can, can do that. Now, Bill, your kids are how old? Okay, so you are now off the hot seat, Sabrina. We ha have an expert in the back row. All other questions will be referred to you, all right? So here we go. You're still, you're still a parent. There's living, living proof. Uh, now, what's the doctor, the doctor attitude? Sometimes I'm wrong, sometimes I'm right. It's an equally, there's oftentimes where we both have to figure that out, all right? Somebody's not happy down there. What's wrong? You want to be up here with me? You looking? You want to sit up here? Want me to hold you while I'm doing this? I can multitask. Look, he quieted right down. Oh, yeah. So, Let's keep going. Um, all I gotta say is it's a lot better with honey than vinegar when you're communicating with your kids. Now let's go to expectations. 
Doughboy expectations, we have too little. We have too little expectations, all right? Dictator expectations, we just expect the worst. Some of you are half-empty kind of glass people. The glass is always half-empty instead of half-full. The doctor expectations is he believes the best. The expectation is he assumes the best. He believes the best. Now you say, let's pause there for a second. You say, you do not know my manipulative little child. And you say it enunciating the words manipulative child. And you say it with a raised eyebrow. How many of you have a kid like that? Just, again, no one will know this. So nobody wants to admit, yes, somebody in here has a manipulative child. My son would fit in that category. Here's what I thought was going on. Katie, when it was time for bedtime, when she was about seven, eight, she would come to me and say, Dad, Dad, it's 8.07. Am I, am I not supposed to be in bed at eight o'clock? Yeah, yes, Katie, you, you should be in bed at eight o'clock. Well, then, Dad, how come you have not tucked me in? That's your mother's job. No, it was my job. I said, okay, let's go to bed. And she'd go to bed, and I'd try to leave. She goes, Dad, what? You're forgetting? What? And she, oh, praying. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I should pray, huh? No, it wasn't that bad, but she was by the book. She was firstborn. She went to bed on her own. Never had a complaint with her about going to bed or getting up. You'd wake her up, she'd wake up with a smile, she'd giggle, she was happy. John Daniel comes along. I know somebody has a John Daniel out there. He comes along, and he, there's no way he's going to bed at eight. He hates going to bed. I mean, if he could stay up till midnight, he'd stay up to midnight. He's seven years old. We lived in Minnesota at the time. Monday night football comes on a little later, and it gets out a little later at night. I can tell you for a fact he'd do this. He'd come, I mean, he would do this. He'd come and sit on the couch, put his arm around Hey, Dad. And he'd heard all these parents. He'd go to camps. He'd sit in on these seminars. This poor kid's getting it since he was two. He's, and I kid you not, he said something like this one time. He says, hey, Dad, you want to watch Monday Night Football? I go, yeah. And he goes, a little male bonding. He's like eight years old when he says, a little male bonding. Give me some knuckle. I'm like, you're working me, aren't you? You know, you can't fool me. I mean, he would just say whatever it took to get what he wanted. Do you think ever he did the divide and conquer with mom and dad? Remember, if I had to pick a choice, I'll admit I'm a little more on the dictator side. My wife's a little bit more on the doughboy side. We tried to find the middle. So who did he always ask stuff from? Mom, of course, mom's a soft touch. Until we learned, go ask your dad. I don't want to talk to dad, go ask your dad. And then, just to mix it up sometimes, I said, hey, could you be the bad cop just once? Let me say yes to something that we can say yes to, and let me say yes, and then you say no for the whole week on all of the stuff he wants. Just a sidebar. One of the things we find as our kids were growing up, learn to say yes as many times as you can. I mean, one of the things that I found out with with Katie, it was easier to say yes because she was responsible from day one. For John Daniel, it was like the book, The One Minute Manager, catching your employees, doing something right, you know, and reinforcing that positive behavior. We had to work hard, and I had to work at helping him make good choices so I could say yes. But here's something that happened that you may find out. When it was all said and done, and now they're out of our house, and then true confessions happened, Katie was the one who was much more secretive and said the things 
that I thought she's just being compliant. No, no, she was calculated, and that's how she got what she wanted. John was not smart enough to not tell the truth. He told the truth all the time, and it got him in trouble. And he said, Dad, now let me, I mean, I remember one time I was disciplined, he said, now Dad, you've said all along that if I tell the truth, the consequences aren't as bad. This sounds like bad consequences. John, you are now still alive. This is a good thing. He didn't think that was a good alternative. Now, you have the doughboy expectations, dictator expectations, doctor expectations. Now, how about the respect for authority by the child? The doughboy, here's authority. Disrespect of authority is completely allowed. And that's when you see these kids just walking over parents, literally, throwing tenter tantrums. There's no control in the grocery store. They're completely out of control. And at times, you as parents, when you're in that situation, you want to go, Hello, McFly, are you seeing this? Your kid is just making a fool of you, and you're not doing anything about it. We're like completely oblivious. What about the dictator? There is no questioning of authority, period. There's none allowed. So let's talk about something. Some of you have kids that are getting older. They've gone to church all their life. Raise your hands again if you have somebody who's 10 years old or older, raise your hand. You're in the stage where it's okay. They're gonna start asking questions. So dad, why do we go to church? Dad, church is boring. Why are we going here? Can't we do something fun? This is, why, why is, you know, they, as they get older and they get into junior high school, well, how do I know there's a God? Just because it's good for you, dad, does it have to be for me? Here's a big one. When is a child old enough to choose whether he goes to church? Now, there's a lot of controversy about this, but I can tell you right now, our simple rule is you get to choose to go to whatever church you want when you don't live in my home. So if you want to not go to church, you should find your own apartment. I think we can find you one. You're 14? Hmm, how are we gonna do that? And the funny thing is, from day one, they knew part of, you know, but as for me at my house, we're gonna, we're gonna go to church. Now, I, I was a pastor, and so there were some freebies for them. Like, when they were really tired, my one office was right off the balcony. So, you know, I'd let them, you know, sit in my office till the last minute, and then they could slip into the balcony and check it out. And, um, you know, when you're a pastor's kid, I'll just give you this little bit in case. Any of you grow up as a pastor's kid? Just curious. Any pastor's kids in here? He's a, he is, Yeah. Yeah, you're a pastor's wife, you, you, know, you know. The bottom line is these kids get scrutinized, analyzed, you know, picked on, like they gotta live up to something. And then the way I told my kids is, you need to be a Christ follower. Not because I'm a pastor, because both my kids came to faith in Christ at a young age. One, it's uh, it, Katie, she walked the Lord his entire life. John Daniel, in a couple weeks, I'll tell you about it. He went way off the deep end as he got older. But I know that for a lot of you, you feel this pressure to live up to somebody else's set of expectations about what a good kid is or how they should behave or how they should respond. I was preaching at Grace Church in Edina, Minnesota. There's about 1,000, 1,500 people in the auditorium. We preached the services like four times. And I remember it was like the third service and before we did our evening round, and um, at the end of our services, 
We had an organ and a pianist, and the organist would play this little interlude of some sort. How many has a church organ? Anybody have a church organ in their church? Any of you? You do, so you know what I'm talking about. The rest of us, well, that's an organ. I don't see one. All right? So they'd play this, and the whole drill was the guy would play the organ little deal, so everybody would remain standing to give the pastor that exit aisle down the middle aisle to get to the back door so he could shake hands. It was kind of a way to get the pastor to the back and play the organ. So they're doing, I, I said, Amen. And the organ starts to play, and before the organ is even two notes into it, my son has, he's about seven, six, maybe, maybe, maybe six. I, I think he was in, maybe five. He, I, I don't think he's in first grade. He's probably kindergarten. Comes booking down the aisle. Now, first of all, I'm a pastor of family ministry. I'm overseeing all this. I'm going, what's our checkout system? That's what's going through my mind. How can this kid have escaped from class? Casey deals with, you guys deal with that every day. How did that kid just get out of class, you know? How did he get out of class without his clothes on? That's a whole other, you know. Where's the diaper, you know? I do remember one time, we were, when we first moved there, about two years old, he went streaking through the high school room. I'm like, where is his clothes? And he grabs the donut and keeps on going. You know, it's like, get that kid. Whose kid is that? So he's, bo- he's coming down the aisle, and from about that third row, and I'm walking down here to get back, he yells out in front of a 1,000 people, and he takes a flying leap from the third row and just jumps towards me, like full on, you know, like he's going to, and I'm supposed to catch him. Now, there was one sadistic moment where I thought, my bad. No, I didn't. I didn't. But so I catch him. I catch him. And do you know what cluckers are? Cluckers are the older parishioners who might sit in a church observing this very childish behavior, we would call it childish, they would call it what? Deviant, undisciplined, rude. Think of any negative word about the behavior, but we think it's childish, they would say, that's out of line. So they cluck, they go. They do that, and they shake their heads. Nonverbals would kill you if you looked at them. Now, I'm not really good at playing to that kind of crowd because I just think it's kind of legalistic. I think the Pharisees were cluckers at time. You know, cluck, 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 right? Bad you. And there was a group of them over here, and they were men and women. Uh, We're not picking on the ladies tonight. Just some cluckers over there. And I have a decision to make about this behavior, which is not appropriate. I'm I'm granting you it is not appropriate. It was a pretty good long jump for a five-year-old, though. I'm thinking he got vertical, he got air, he, I caught him, 10, you know, 9-9. Nine, nine. But I am, this is that second, I was such a stubborn kid. Remember the Board of Education met the seat of my inner saying, I'm not gonna give in to that. So as I'm smiling to them, thinking, making them think, I think it's totally okay, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm saying to John, John Daniel, don't ever do that again, or else the Board of Education's gonna meet the seat of your and I love you, but don't do that. But I didn't show any negative emotion. So they think, I think that is totally acceptable. And so he think, he sees, he goes, really? I go, yeah, he goes, can I play the piano then? No, and I'm smiling the whole time. So I'm sure that group thought, I'm the most undisciplined, irresponsible parent on the face of the planet. And there you go. It's a pastor's kid anyway. Hmm. Now, we did have a talk about that with John. I said, John, I love that you love me and you gave me a hug. There are appropriate times for us to talk. And that might not have been the best time. We can save like the hugs and the running, jumping at our house. But 
Usually daddy has to talk to people right afterwards. So here's where we taught this little principle. How many of you have kids that interrupt you while you're talking to some adult at church? Anybody ever had a kid who wants to interrupt and get your attention? Imagine how many people are in line to talk to me on an average Sunday for, and I say, nobody. Well, yeah, occasionally back in the day people wanted to talk to me. Um, so people would be lined up to talk. So my kids would do this constant, dad, 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 and they'd, they'd physically grab or they you know, get in the way, and that's very rude. So early on, we developed this little technique. Who's the shortest person in the room here? Or take any person in this room. You can be my son. Come on up, stand up here. So we had, you can be me, and I'll be John Daniel. <laughs> no, I won't do it. Because um, he did some pretty, like, oh. He's not, I'm gonna jump, you gotta catch me. So we had this little rule with our kids. If you want to talk, and it's really an emergency, it's really important, you don't say a word. You walk up and you just do this. And that was my signal, this is seriously important. Now we had to define what's seriously important because to a seven-year-old, everything is seriously important, right? So he's put his hand on my shoulder like this. And that allowed me to then, now I'll play this, when I'm talking to this other parishioner, to go, just a second, I wanna hear what you're saying. And I get down and I like, what is it? He goes, Dad, are we gonna do this? Mom wants to know what you want for lunch. Good interruption, I think that was a good interruption. And we trained them, you can have a seat, we trained them to, after a while, nah, that's not a good interruption, that's not, and they had to learn. Not everything on their agenda was the most important thing in their life. It was to them, but it wasn't always appropriate. But we yell at kids when we haven't trained them. How about this, we ask our kids to sit still in church. Now we're gonna experiment here on the fourth Sunday of this parenting seminar, it's three Tuesdays, and then the fourth is a Sunday. Your kids are gonna have to sit in here with you. You go, no, do not do that to us. Yes, kindergartens will be in this for the entire hour and 20 minutes. No, we can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. There are two ways. A, drug them before they come. <laughs> no. But think about it. If your kids can't sit still for 20 minutes at your dinner table, and as you open the word and have any kind of family devotions, why do you expect them to sit for an hour and a half? Now some of you know that your kids can sit still for at least 50 minutes because they're in school. And the older they get, they should be able to sit there. But what I believe happens is we've trained our kids to respond to immediate stimulus. Every, you know, the TV, it's every seven minutes you gotta cut to an action shot. And so we haven't told or trained our kids how to sit in church. Now our kids sat in church from the time they were probably five years old, all right? It's only when I went to a bigger church where all of a sudden we said, oh, kids can't be in church. They gotta go to this program, they go to that problem. And you know why? It's because parents didn't want the hassle of having trained their kids how to sit in worship. Now we are kinda halfway here, right? You, they sit in worship and you should teach them how to worship with you. Just a sidebar, I don't mind those kids sitting over there, but I'd much rather see those kids sitting with their parents because they're modeling, Dad, they're watching you. When you lift your hands, they're gonna lift their hands. If you never get your hands above your waist, they're going, yep, we're in a Baptist church. We don't raise our hands. No offense, cousin, no, we're Baptist. Or we can say, hey, when Dad opens the Bible, look at, I'm gonna open the Bible, you know? Dad never has a Bible. Oh, I wonder if I need a Bible, right? You see, kids are watching you even in worship. So, I don't know how I got on that. That's a little bit of a tangent, but I'm sure the tape will figure it out. All right, Doughboy. 
Doctor, where are we at? Uh, Dictator, no questioning of authority is allowed. The doctor, the authority is respectful questioning of authority is allowed. Respectful questioning of authority is allowed. Question, what is respectful? When a kid is gonna question you or ask a question, what have you learned that works for you? What is appropriate in, in terms of how they can appeal to a decision you've made? And it just works at whatever age. What do you guys do? A calm voice. A calm voice, right? So when the volume is up, here's my wife is great at this. She'd get down to the level, John Daniel, could you repeat that please with a little lower voice? Okay, mom. No, not that way, right? So calm voice. What else? Well, and first they need to obey and then they can request. Okay, obey first, then request. Okay, very good. What else have you found? Because kids have to feel like they can say, hey, what about this? And by the way, if you say something, they have unbelievable memory recall about what you have promised. Is that not true? But dad, you said if I, did I say that? Yes, you did. And if you don't remember what you say, you better not say it or you better have someone else there backing you up. Now, if you have more than one kid, they'll rat each other out, so that's a whole nother discussion about how you can use your other kids to defend your honor and behavior about what you did or didn't say. All right, conflict resolution. Doughboy, the conflict resolution style is avoidance. It's not really apathy. Usually they just want to avoid it. They don't want conflict. Now, this doesn't mean you're a doughboy all the time, but how many of you are kind of conflict avoiders? If you had your way in life, you just would really not like to have conflict. All right, my wife's like that. She hates conflict. She'll go out of her way to avoid conflict. She'll take an injury, so to speak, in a slide and be hurt, and she just, until she gets home and talks to me, and then it's, right? And, well, why don't you say that to them? Oh, I could never say it to them. But you just said everything you wish you would have said, but you're saying it to me. I know, but I couldn't do that. That would be nice. What if, and what you're asking is, well, what if they don't like me? What if they don't, what if they don't listen to me? Well, think about that when you're dealing with your kids. If you just want to avoid conflict, they're going to steamroll you. Now, the dictator is on the other side. He likes, like, conflict for breakfast. It's like antagonism. Bring it. You want to have an argument? Bring it. You want to debate? I can grill you into the ground. You think you're logical? Oh, just come on. You know, and they just destroy their kids with logic. Now, I found when my kids were growing up, logic rarely had anything to do with that decision and why they did stuff. I got tired of asking, help me understand what you were thinking here. There was no thinking. John Daniel, what possessed you when there was nine feet of snow drifts in our front yard to think you could get up on a ladder and see if you could sled off our roof and do the jump into the front yard. That's a big drop, John Daniel. And he didn't have an answer. He was a kid. Kids do stuff they don't think. And one of your skills as, their par as parents, as your kids are growing up, is learn to help them think why they do what they should be doing. Not what is right or wrong. We, we all teach right or wrong but you want to give them principles to make decisions so they, they, can, they may not, you can't cover every possible scenario with your kids. Uh, the doctor conflict resolution style is address the issues. Just address the issues. You don't have to avoid them. You don't have to antagonize them. Just address them. 
So at every parenting stage, there are issues that you are facing. How many of you are facing homework issues? Like getting it done. The older they get. Okay, how old is your kid? Nine. Nine. Oh my goodness, he was beginning young, right? Homework was made for, for people dead that aren't that smart, you know? I don't need to do my homework, right? Or whatever. And some kids, are, and when we get to week three, it's called Parenting Pearls, what, what about? We're gonna deal with all these kind of practical issues. So next week, if I remember, we'll have three by five cards, and you just write out questions that you want us to cover in week three, and I'll cover some of the top 10 things that we all face as parents, all right? Um, address the issues. Now, what's the conflict resolution style? The doughboy, another part of that is they want to compromise. Just compromise, compromise, compromise. The dictator is all about being critical. Being critical. Doughboy compromises, dictator is critical. The doctor is a consensus builder. And you say, oh, this sounds too political to me. How do you build consensus with your kids? What I find is I want to give my kids choices that I win both ways. So I don't say, do you want to wear your coat or not wear your coat? I want to say, hey, do you want to wear your blue coat or you want to wear your green coat? I don't care. He thinks he's got a choice. Either way, I get the coat. They say, well, I don't want to wear my coat. Well, that's good. You want to wear the sweater or the coat then? Well, I don't really need it. Really? Because you're going to die. It's Minnesota. Kid, it's 20 below. Here, let's go take your tongue and put on. No. You know, and so sometimes for our kids, they gotta, you got to just let them say, it's not that big a deal. And for some of us, we make bigger deals out of stuff than we really need to make. Now, some of you who are parents who have kids who are older, and you've had number two or three or four, did your parenting style change as with those kids? Now, I have a big nodding head there. How many kids do you have? Five. Give me ages. Holy smoke. So if you do the math there, she had five kids under the age of seven at one time, right? You know what? We have mandatory nap time for you right now. Just lay down and you get a free pass. All right. You know, when you have one kid, it's, it's a double team, right? You have two kids, it's man on man. From then on, it's zone defense, right? And so you can't make every issue life-threatening, life-changing issues. If you start like that when they're two, three, and four, you're going to be a neurotic mess by the time they get into high school. So what were the big issues? What are the big issues? For us, there were only two really big issues from birth to 12 years old. We boil them all down to two. You say, seriously? Well, not exactly, but it really comes down to these two categories, disrespect and dishonesty. Most of the criminal felony acts of child days fell into those categories, disrespect or dishonesty. A lot of the other stuff, I had to learn how to let it slide. Now here's the thing, with what you know about my two parents, who do you think I clashed with the most, my passive dad or my dictator mom? Who did I clash with? Mom, 95% of the time. What did I say to myself growing up? I'm never gonna be like my mom. And one day, I wake up, I look in the mirror, she had much longer hair, I'd become my mom. 
I was horrified. My kids were probably at the time, we're in Minnesota, so they were probably six and eight years old. And my wife, bless her soul, calmly, without the kids around, after one of my blow-ups where I didn't really discipline in love, I was angry about something and was frustrated, said, honey, are you enjoying this? And she said it with a straight face. She wasn't trying to be funny. Are you enjoying this? Because it's not so good for me. I'm really done with this. You know, I'm totally done with this. She said, are you enjoying this? I said, of course not. And she just looked at me and paused for a really long time. She said, I know you love our kids, but sometimes you just come across like they're never going to be good enough for you. And then she said, and this is when the knife went in, she said, didn't you tell me that's how your mom made you feel growing up? What was my initial reaction as a husband? A not godly husband. What did I do? <laughs> I'll give you a free pass. Of course, I, well, I, I started making excuses. And this is the beauty of my wife. She said, okay. Just thought maybe it's something you think. She didn't try to push it, didn't argue, didn't try to, just thought you might want to think about that. Oh, believe me, did I think about that. I went to bed stewing. I turned over. I kissed her goodnight, and I looked out the window for probably two hours that night. And I woke up totally convinced that she was exactly right. And so the reason I'm telling you that is I think I started as a dictator parent. For the first eight years of my kid's life, I think I was totally the dictator, except when it came to stuff that freaked my wife out. And I was the greatest dad in the world. I want him to play. I want him to take risks. I want him to climb up walls and trees and but in the discipline, I was just such a dictator. My wife was so much better at getting to the heart of my child, of our children. And I gotta tell you, if you have that ability to get past all the verbiage and all the action and all the drama, what you want to do is capture their heart. And if you capture the heart and the Lord captures their heart, you're gonna get their will you'll get their obedience. It's a heart thing. It's not always just a conformity thing. So I confess to you, I'm a recovering dictator. And the funny thing was, I did the other direction. So by the time we get into high school, we have this role reversal. And that protective instinct of a mom can become smothering, not mothering, especially with boys as they get into high school. Moms, let them do man stuff with dad and just grin, bear it, wince, look the other way. It's okay. They come back with all their fingers, it's a good day, right? You say, but he's so irresponsible. You know my husband. No, I know a bunch of husbands like that. I was here for Airsoft the other night. There are eight-year-olds and there are dads and that was awesome. I'm there blowing each other up. It's a good thing. Getting a welt is a manly thing. Yeah, look at this, Dad. I got four of them. Did I cry? No! Now, I got to admit to you, there were at least three helicopter moms there that night. I don't know how their kids were. They were just hovering. They didn't get, 
you know, is he going to be all right? And they were out in the parking lot. They would not go home. You know, I thought maybe you could get them home, shoot them. They'll get the idea. But that wouldn't be cool because Sabrina's husband runs a tight ship there. But it's good. Let them do manly stuff. Let them do guy stuff. And my wife had to learn to let go in a different way because we role reversed once they got to high school. Who taught my kids how to drive, my wife or me? Who do you think taught? Of course I did because there's no way she's taking them out there. She's scared to death. You talk about, you know, the proverbial, you know, if they could have the, grab the handle, you know, she couldn't do it. She would be a nervous wreck. Remember, they learned, my daughter learned how to drive a car in Minnesota. What do we have in Minnesota? Snow. What else do we have more? Ice. I had to take her, talk about scary, taking her into a parking lot while I'm driving, and I do a 360 to show her what it feels like. Then I tell her, you're going to do a 360 while I'm in the car. Now, it's an empty parking lot with nothing to hit. Do you think I told my wife we were doing that that day? No. This is on the down low. Katie about wet her pants because she's a firstborn. Dad, we're not supposed to. You got to do it for me. Just do it. I want you to just do it so you know what you're going to do if you ever get in this situation again. Now, by the way, it's totally unrealistic because there's going to be a car in front of you and there's not going to be plenty of room to spin and you just hope they don't, you know, hit something. But we had that agreement. There's some things my wife just couldn't stomach and she just said to let go, all right? So you have uh, the doughboy personality. Did I get to that? Doctor's consensus. All right, how about the doughboy personality? Totally laid back and complacent. Totally laid back and complacent. Now, sometimes when you're so laid back and complacent, you're a little clueless. Like, what happened to this car here? How did this happen? Check it out. I don't know how you get a car in that situation. I don't know if it's not paying attention to what you're doing, but um, you've got to explain that to me, how that happened. Now, the dictator's personality is totally intense and controlling and dominant, all right? Totally intense, controlling, and dominant. The doctor personality usually, we hope, or you're balanced and you're concerned. All right? So when the kid falls on his bike, he's learning how to ride, what's our approach? Huh? You wait. See what he's going to do. What's your natural instinct, moms? Run, pick him up. Is he hurt? Now think about how, I don't know how you did it. Our kids learned with a football helmet on because John played football. So I mean, it was funny when Katie had this football helmet on. They had little shoulder pads and, or little arm things and they're going to crash. All right? They'll live. They get a little road rash. They'll live. So sometimes we try to rescue them from every little thing in life. Here's a little principle. Let the consequences of their behavior, let them suffer them. Whatever the consequences of their behavior, let them suffer the consequence of their behavior. When we get to discipline next week, we're going to talk about that principle because there are some parents who cannot let their kids fail. They're the parents doing the science project. The United States map made with the, the I don't know if they still do this with the water and the flour and they don't do that. Thank goodness. That was the worst project I ever did. No. Um, so, What's the personality? Balanced and concerned. That's the doctor. Okay, let's get to the basis. Here's the money. This column, this is, this is bottom line. 
What's the dole I want? They want approval. Think about that. The ultimate basis of relationship for a doughboy is I want approval. That's a hard thing to admit, parents, that you want the approval of your child. The dictator wants control. The basis of I want control. One wants approval, one wants control. Now, on the approval side, guess what, folks? You are not your kid's best friend. You go, oh, it's not the way in the movies. You know, she talks to mom on her wedding day. Yeah, yeah, you'll have some of that. But when they're nine, you need to be mom, not best friend. There are times that you're gonna disappoint your kids. You're gonna say the word N-O. Not 47 times and then you cave in and say yes. It's no, and it was no, and it's gonna stay no. Now again, balance that with try to say yes as often as you can because not everything needs to be a big deal. And so that whole idea of, of control, I wanna ask you a question. What? are you afraid of? Now this gets really, I'm going from preaching, for those of you who don't go to my church, I, when I step around from behind here, they all know I'm going from preaching to meddling. So I'm gonna meddle for a second. When you tend to be control oriented, ask yourself, what am I afraid of? When your kid's misbehaving, when something's going on, there's a fear factor going on and it's a tape that's running internal to your parenting system, it's, it's not on the screen, it's running here in the back of your mind. So let's pause here. What are you worried about? What are you afraid of? Huh? Public humiliation. Public humiliation. I think that's a good one to be afraid of, yeah? How about this one? What will other parents think? Is that a fear? Of course it is. You live in a Gurra Hills, Calabasas, and Westlake, my goodness. Everybody's got their kids. My kid made the honor roll. Oh, really? Well, my kid made the whatever roll. It was for the month, not just the week. My student was athlete of the year. Well, yeah, but you gave the athletic program $3,000, so no wonder you bought your way to that. You know, it's so petty, right? And now some of you are going, what are you talking about? Anybody have any kids at Oaks Christian? Yeah, I couldn't either. It's $27,000 a year. It's like, I had two Chinese students who lived with us last year that went to Oaks. They paid $43,000 a year. Who has that kind of money to go to high school? Apparently somebody does. And so we want this uh, control. What are we afraid of? What is it that we're trying to do when we're afraid? When you operate out of fear as a parent, let me just tell you, you make bad choices. Almost always you make a bad choice when you're operating out of fear. Now, there's some healthy fear, right? Your kid's gonna run into the street, you grab him to save his life, and you explain that buses win, cars win. You don't do that, right? But you gotta train your kids, you gotta talk to them. And so in that initial fear, you raise your voice, you get angry with them, and you realize that fear produced that anger, right? Now, what about the doctor? The basis for the doctor is just respect. The goal of parenting for the doctor is to develop kids who understand the concept of respect. And I believe that's a two-way street. Now, none of you in this room will ever admit to yelling at your kids and using names that are embarrassing and inappropriate. Now, you probably have done it, but you don't like tell everybody like, yeah, I just went off on my kid, I called him a loser, and did this, and you know, I yelled at him, and you know, disciplined him in anger, and nobody wants to admit that stuff. 
but nearly every parent has lost it with a kid somewhere in their life. If you have never lost it with your kid, I want you to come forward. We'll pair you with a parent who has a kid that will provoke you in first 30 minutes, and we will ruin your streak. Because I'm telling you, my sister and my firstborn were that kind of kid. My parents were perfect parents, I'm telling you, until I came along. We did pretty good with Katie until John Daniel came along. I'm really wondering what if we, I'm, I'm now thinking, Lord, what would have happened if we had three or four? What would have happened? My new game plan is if I had to do it over again, I would have had like five kids. Because your odds are much better that at least one of them will become a missionary <laughs> or a preacher. Otherwise, you only got one out of two, you know, that kind of thing. Now, the doughboy discipline. They're afraid to discipline. They seldom or never react. Maybe they're permissive. That's kind of their approach. Sometimes afraid, and you can see it just kind of flows, this whole chart, all right? Never reacts, or if they do, they're minimal reaction. The dictator discipline. Always disciplines. He overreacts. There's punishment. There's punishment. By the way, if you've missed us, I think I just decided we're going to actually put the PowerPoint on the website, and then you can go and see the PowerPoint in relationship to the... Um, to the deal. Now, I want to I show you this, this picture, and I'm going to read a statement. You can read it with me as we go next. Much has been said about tough love for misbehaving children. Most of America's populace thinks that it's very important to spank children, so my spouse and I have tried other methods to control our kids when they have one of those moments. One of the ways that we found very effective is for me just to take the child for a, a car ride and talk. They usually calm down and stop misbehaving after our little car ride together. I've included the photo below of one of my sessions with our son in case you'd like to use this technique. <laughs> so there you go. It's one of the things you can do. No, I've never done that. All right. The t you are a very good crowd. I like you. I, you remind, my mom used to laugh at every joke. All right, very good. Doctor, what's the discipline for the doctor? He's consistent. That's the biggest deal. Consistent discipline, not this variable. And, there's about, and he's dealing with reality, and he works on praising his kids. This is where you've got to work hard. With some of your kids, you've got to work hard to catch them doing something right. Now, I'm, I'm conscious. What time is it right now, just so I know? 8.20. Oh, 7.20. Because the mind cannot absorb what the seat cannot endure. So... Um, Let's pause there for just a moment. We're going to stop the tape. And what I, before I finish this, I want you to go back now. And in, during this little break, I want you to fill out the first three pages. I want to find, you can kind of find out if you're a, uh, a doughboy or what we call pushover or a dictator or what we call platoon parent, okay? Now, you can kind of look on it together and change, you know, you, it's going to be hard to do it. You, you can vote for each other. Huh? You know, we could make some more copies. Um, do you want to take mine? And then, because, yeah. There you go. Okay. So if you all can take it, maybe another 20. And then you can each take it. Okay? So let's pause. The, we'll pause filming here for a second. We'll come back. So as you're doing that, uh, for the one that's not filling out, go ahead and stretch for a few minutes, and we'll, we'll get back to it. Recorded. 
We're actually videotaping tonight. Yeah, there'll be video and you'll get that on the website. By the way, this is Ron Brookman in the back. Everybody wave to Ron. I don't know if you realize how many hours a week he does. It won't just be edited. I said something stupid on Sunday. I made something. I will take care of that on the tape. I got email. Took care of that little thing for your pastor this week. I, I mean, he is the best. You can record that. We can do that. You are the best, Ron. And um, he does a lot of extra work to make that helpful. Okay, we ready, Ron? Okay. All right, let's continue. We left off um, with the Doughboy's uh, highest priority. Is that right? Have we gotten to that? Or the doctor, they discipline, all right? Now, uh, let's get to the highest priority, all right? The highest priority for the Doughboy is no conflict. It's all about relationship. The highest priority for the Doughboy is no conflict. It's all about the relationship. I'm going to give you a little math formula here. Relationship minus rules equals recklessness. If you can write that, I'm going to give you a three-part equation here in a second. Relationship minus rules equals recklessness. That's the end game of a doughboy if it's all about relationship and there's no rules. All right, let's go to the dictator because he goes to the other side. It's about order and obedience and it's all about the rules, okay? Here's the, here's the math equation from their end. Rules minus relationship equals rebellion, equals rebellion. Remember I told you that 87% rule? If you are authoritarian, not authoritative, those are different words, that authoritarian parent, there's all kinds of social science research that indicates to us that if it's all about rules and there's no relationship, you will have a kid who will rebel. Okay, gut check time for me. So I had a kid who went off the deep end. I'm gonna tell you more about that in a few weeks, but I wanna suffice it to say, when your kids are doing well, here's a general rule for parenting I see. When your kids are doing well, you take way too much credit. And when your kids are doing poorly, you take way too much blame. There has to be some happy medium. Remember I told you I kinda did the role reversal when our kids got into high school. But for a long time, when my son was far from God between ages 18 and 22, I lived with a lot of second guessing of myself. And I prayed this prayer often. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ancient thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Well-meaning people would give me these verses. And the sins of the fathers are visited the second and third and fourth and fifth and ninth generation, right? Or you know the verse out of Exodus. When my son was off the deep end, I'll just say this frankly, I heard a lot of stupid stuff told to me. If I would only have done this, or if I should have done that, or have you thought about this? Of course I've thought about this. I'm anguishing about this. I am broken over this. And the number one feeling that parents who have kids who are off the deep end, and I realize for some of you, you've got little angels here, they're under the age of 10, and for the most part, life is good. 
I'm talking about some of you who are dealing with teenagers and you're getting into this kind of independence. The predominant number one feeling of parents whose kids went off the deep end, shame. And it broke my heart as a pastor because I had one and I'd talk to parents and they were so filled with shame, heaping guilt on themselves. I started a ministry called Parents of Prodigals. And during that time, it was almost like you had to have the secret handshake and knock on the door and look through and give the two, you know, and you could get in. Never once advertised it. It was still on staff at Your Learner Friends. Never once advertised it at the church. It was never on the website. And over a two year period, over 40 different parents found their way to our home on a Thursday night. And the predominant feeling was shame. But after they came to a support group, the second most predominant feeling was relief. I'm not alone. So let me tell you something. If you have a kid who's causing you grief right now, I encourage you to find another parent who's in equal grief, and you gotta find each other. And I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to orchestrate that. But if you wanna tell me, I'll just keep it a secret, and when the next person, I'll then pair you up, and we'll just keep it on the down low. And you say, why do you gotta do that? Because parents are embarrassed. They say stuff, oh, I didn't raise my kid like that. He knows better. He should have never gotten the DUI. I can't believe she got pregnant. I didn't teach him how to do drugs. And those are just a handful of the things that I dealt with. Or for some of you, you may have a kid whose sexual orientation is messed up and now your kid's gay. You have no idea how many families I've dealt with whose kids are gay. For 25 years I've been dealing with this quietly under the radar because no church wants to talk about it. So I do it for 25 years. And what do you think happens in our family a year and a half ago when my niece, who I did her wedding, divorces her husband and says she's gay? and has moved in with her girlfriend. Friends, because you are a Christian, you are not exempt from the trials and tribulations of life. And I'm so glad that I have a gracious Heavenly Father who has extended grace. Because I don't deserve it. Think about grace and mercy, right? What's the definition of grace and what's the definition of mercy? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And in parenting, we need to extend both the left hand of grace and the right hand of mercy. And when you have a kid who's off the deep end, and I realize this is a whole nother deal and I've kind of just like steered off the road here for a second. You can just go like tangent, and I'll come back, but for a moment here. When you look at the scriptures, and you have a kid who's off the deep end, here's the one that I cling to. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O oh Lord. It's your kindness. 
all the yelling, the anger, the frustration, the fist pounding, the chest beating, doesn't mean a hill of being of difference. When my son finally came back to the Lord, when it's all said and done, and now we're over three and a half years now removed from that just horrendous time, he pulled me aside, I don't know, a couple years ago now and said, Dad, you know you did the right things. I said, what do you mean? Dad, I saw you beat yourself up. It wasn't your fault. I was gonna do what I was gonna do, and the only way I was gonna learn was the hard way. Some parents never get that conversation with their kid, and they live with guilt the rest of their lives. Because the kid isn't 25, he's 50, he's 60, and they're 80, or their kid's 40, and they're still wondering if their kid will ever come back. And so I just say that because for right now, some of you are just living the dream. The kids are doing fine, you got the normal parenting stuff, but some of you are heading into a dark cavern and you're scared to death. And if you find yourself in that place, come, come and talk. I don't have all the answers, but I've learned a really good skill. I know how to listen and pass the Kleenex. Okay? And if you have friends like that who are not churched, who don't go to church, who don't darken the door of a church, those are the friends that I want you to introduce to me because those are the people who really don't have any hope. They have nothing to cling to. By the way, if you're trying to figure out where God fits in all of this, this isn't an overtly spiritual discussion, is it? We're not, I, in fact, I have not opened the Bible yet. But everything I'm telling you is biblically based, and I could show you over time. In fact, we'll talk about biblical virtues. You can pray for your kids in a couple weeks and some other things. So, Doughboy, relationship minus rules equals recklessness, the dictator rules minus relationship equal rebellion. And the doctor's highest priority is not order and control. It's not about rules and relationship. It's about being responsible. It's about developing character and maturity in your kids. It's about responsibility. So there is a new math formula. Rules plus relationship equals responsibility. It's not an either or, it's an and both. Rules plus relationship equal responsibility. Now there's four or five men in here tonight that started, we started the day together at 6 a.m. this morning. (laughs) What craziness is that? If God wanted us to see the sunrise, he would have done it at 10 a.m. when I could enjoy it, right? And we're studying about what it means to be a man. And so many of us realize we didn't have fathers that modeled this stuff for us. So no wonder we're floundering at times because we've never been taught how to do this. My goodness, my dad, when I was finally 32, I'd been married 10 years, we're playing golf. And I said, Dad, how come you and Mom never fought? He said, you got that wrong. You just never saw us. We rarely did it in front of you. And I said, I know. So I feel like a total loser. Cheryl and I just get into it. 
And that's not healthy either. I mean, your kids gotta see you in some level of conflict. I mean, Lord willing, there's not F-bombs flying and, you know, pans flying and, you know, stuff like that. But they gotta see that there are times that you're not happy with each other and you have a way of negotiating peace. Now, we did that for our kids. If they saw us get into the car and leave them, they go, ooh, this is a big one. because they're driving away in the car. Order some pizza, we'll be back in two hours, you know. But the little annoyances in life, our kids didn't hear the D word. They didn't hear the divorce word. They saw the disagreement word. They saw intensity. They saw at times me asking my wife forgiveness for overreacting. They saw their mom have to own up that she just got played and maybe she should have held the ground. They saw us interact. Now, you gotta find what you're comfortable with, but kids find that they are amazingly secure when they can see mom and dad don't always agree, but they figure it out. If they never see you ever have any conflict, they're gonna get married and go, that's the model for marriage. And when they have their first big fight in their marriage, they're going, my parents never did that. I must be a complete loser. Is that the right L? Loser, right? And you've got to show them how you process conflict. And there's little things. There's no divide and conquer with you, right? I'm kind of getting ahead to, well, I'll save that. Discipline's next week. But you can't let your kids divide and conquer you. You've got to be on the same page. We'll talk about that next week. So when this whole thing about developing character and relationship and rules, would you write down this phrase? God is more interested in your direction than your perfection. God is far more interested in your direction of your family and your life than your perfection. Now, I had as close to having a perfect kid, I thought, in my firstborn daughter. I've already praised her. By the way, John Daniel, when he was younger, would say, Dad, are you gonna tell him the story about the time? No, I'm not, because you've enjoyed that way too much. I'm not telling that story. But let me tell you about the firstborn, that rule keeper. I'm gonna be bed at six o'clock or eight o'clock when she's six. When she was 16, and I'll show you a picture of her in the weeks to come, She's five foot one, weighs maybe 95 pounds. And what three-letter word did she think she was? It begins with F. Fat. And we discovered she had an eating disorder when she's 16. You know who found out? Little brother who snaked her journal and she had written about it because she was at least gonna write it all down and then caught her throwing up one time on a Tuesday afternoon when Cheryl was gone I was at work. How does it feel to be that 14-year-old brother who's in eighth grade, your, your sister you idolize, he knows the word bulimic, and he's trying to decide whether he tells us. You talk about a torn kid was my son. He has a high degree of keeping the keeping loyal, and you don't narc anybody. I mean, that's part of what he was about was he protected so many people in his life, which ultimately got him in trouble because he wouldn't rat them out. 
but that's his sister. And I remember him trying to figure out what he was going to do because he loved her. I mean, if he didn't love her, he'd just knock her out and like, yeah, I'm blowing your cover, chick. You pay up or I'll, I'll, you know, I'm telling. It was none of that. It was agony for him. And I remember the night that he pulled me aside and we're at the dinner table and John's agitated more than normal. And he, um, he starts crying at dinner. He says, and he looks at Katie with tears in his eyes, says, Dad, this is, something's not right. And you can see Katie, the blood go up her neck. And she just said, he said to her, Katie, you gotta tell him. What? What? John turns his head like this, tears are coming down. You got to tell him. What? She wouldn't own up. He goes, Katie, I read the journal. Her eyes get big. Cheryl at this point is going, what? I'm going, what? And then Katie bursts into tears. She goes to counseling. Then counseling, we find out from the time she was in first grade, she thinks she's fat. And if you saw my daughter, she is gorgeous, beautiful, petite, size one. So we think we're done with it. Counseling, junior year, high school, we think we're done. I get a phone call from Biola University, her freshman year, from the doctor. She's in the emergency room. And I won't get into all the details, but she wasn't done. We thought we had dealt with it, done the counseling, got to the root of it. Nearly died. So I don't care if you have a compliant kid at this stage and then you got the rebellious one at this stage, they'll flip-flop on you. And that firstborn often will do those things that will please you and they will say the things that make you happy. And they stuff it and they hold it in and they don't, aren't always honest with you. I already told you, John wasn't smart enough not to, like, he just didn't know how to lie. He told me everything. In fact, there were times as parents I'd go, blah, 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 blah. I just didn't want to hear it because he was so honest. I would have never told my dad the things he told me. And so as you're parenting and your kids are going through those stages, just realize probably you're carrying a weight of responsibility tonight for how your kids are going to turn out. Because somebody has fed us this line that if we do this, 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 and this, then we're automatically guaranteed that they're going to turn out like that. And I'm telling you, it's not true. What I do know is true is that God's word is unfailing. And there were times the only thing I could claim was the truth in God's word. And I go over the, I have this, if you want it, I've got this somewhere, you can get it from me. A whole bunch of verses on parents for prodigals that were meaningful to us during that time. And so, as we think about the doctor's highest priority, it's not that your kids are perfect, it's not all about the rules, it's not about relationships, it's about maturity and responsibility. So, what's the end result here? The doughboy, the end result, oftentimes is this internal frustration and there's a lot of guilt. Because when they look back, they go, did I do this right? And they're kind of always kind of, hmm, I'm not sure. 
because that whole wishy-washiness and look into the past. The dictator, the end result, is external frustration. One is internal, this guy tends to be external. One deals with guilt, this guy deals with anger. And he's not looking for the past, he's looking for the future. I can't wait till my kids get out of such and such a stage. Out of diapers, into this and this and that. And there, he's always pushing because this stage is painful. And he thinks that just changing stages, it'll all get better. By the way, there is a time that it does get better. Just sidebar here. Once they are out of diapers, I gotta tell you, diapers and me, that was not my favorite thing. And I did my share of diaper changing. But I did not regret the day that I didn't spend how many... a month in diapers and changing and middle-of-the-night feedings, which I couldn't really do until they went to the bottle. That's a whole other discussion about how long you breastfeed, but I'm out of vacation. I go for like three years, and I never have to get up to do that now, of course. But the bottom line is there's always some frustration, but I do think when they got into their walking and talking, I came into my own. My wife was really smart. When I'd come home, I didn't have a honey-do list of all the stuff I had to do around the house. I had the greatest job on the face of the planet from the time they were about four all the way up into high school. My job as a, when they were kids, my number one job my wife wanted me to do, you're gonna think this is crazy, play with your kids. Now, now it came across like this. Take your children. You must play with them Exit the house, do not come back till dinner. It wasn't quite like that, but I played with my kids a lot. And when I was a youth pastor, one of the things I got into it with my senior pastor back in those days was, the church cannot own me. I am not sacrificing my family on the altar of the church. And I was at every baseball game, even the ones at Tuesday at three o'clock. I'll come at five in the morning, but I'm leaving at 2.15. I'm getting to that game. Most pastors get that. I think you got, I'm glad I was a pastor. I was able to arrange my schedule to be at nearly everything. And if I wasn't, I was usually in a foreign country on a missions trip if I missed something. And so I would just suggest that that if you work that out with your, in your parenting style, figure out what your job is and figure out what your wife's job is and then live it, live it all the way to the fullest. So the doctor, the end result, is just predictable reactions. He's in the moment. He enjoys the present. And by and large, I enjoyed every stage of our kids' development the only stage I'm kind of admitting to wasn't so much into the diapers. Any guys not really into the diaper thing? Just, as it was just me? Okay, there's three of us. Okay. How many moms aren't into the diapers? Yeah. We're equally opportunity. I'm neither one of us. All right. Um, by the way, this is, I know, a personal thing, but I could never understand the parents who wanted not to use disposable diapers. Maybe they were environmentalists. I'm not sure. You're serious? Not only do I change it, do I have to... Wash that? Are you? Oh, bless you. You sick and twisted thing. No, I'm just kidding. How can you do that? It's just like, you just like this? It's in your washing machine. My clothes are going in there after that's been in there. Are you sure it's like going all the way through, done? No. 
pastor's wife, you know, we're all, you know, that's, that's uh, you can handle it. You're, you're a good woman, all right. Better I could not do that. The doctor, the end result is predictable reactions. They enjoy the present. What's the outcome for the doughboy? Unpredictability. Here's what both the doughboy and the dictator, they both write the word unpredictable. But look at what they feel like. Life is for them is like this. They're never wondering what lurks out there. You know, the doughboy's worried about what's out there to get my kid. The dictator sometimes is the shark, you know? So you have the doughboy and the dictator. It's both unpredictability. The doctor, there's some sense of security when it's all said and done because we're ultimately not responsible for our kids' choices. There's a sense of peacefulness. Now, you say, oh, that's a nice way to tidy up your program. You know, security, how nice. Reality is we all know that you do the best job you can and in the end game, when it's all said and done, your kids are gonna have to make choices. For me, the choices that I wanted most for my kids were the following things. Number one, and I've told you this before, but I'll repeat it. Number one, I wanted my kids to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and own it for themselves. Check it off, both my kids have that today. Number two, I wanted my kids to marry a growing believer and establish a Christ-centered home. Check one of them off. My 25-year-old son is available, <laughs> godly, looking for a spouse. If you have a niece who's between 22 and 25, we should talk. I've decided that arranged marriages are perfect. Check that one off. You know, the coolest thing the other day is my son calling me and said, hey, I went out with this girl. I said, where'd you meet? Online, I went, no. And I didn't want, I go, tell me about the website he did. I said, what was one of your first three questions? Questions. He said, the first question, Dad, was I wanted to know about her faith and was she a Christian? I said, now some of you come from different traditions. I said, Christian? Yeah, is she Christian? He goes, well, Dad, she goes to a Catholic church. I don't think I know enough yet. And I'm thinking there is a God in heaven. He gets to understand that there's more than just what church you attend. What is your, what's your faith like? What's, what's going on with that person? So thirdly, I prayed that my kids would be able to study the Bible and read it for themselves and apply it to daily living. And another day, another time, I'll tell more about that. Fourthly, I wanted my kids to serve God faithfully and realize that ministry was the lifestyle of a committed Christian, that you, you serve God somewhere. You know that prodigal kid who's so far from God, off the deep end, from 18 to 22? I'm so proud of him today. He's part of a group called Global, Global Noble Deeds. And one of the things they do is they harvest fruit out of backyards of people who don't care about it and don't use it and let it go to waste. And they take that fruit and take it to battered women's shelters and to rescue missions and to the homeless. So he started a ministry called Burgers and Bibles. I thought it was a college thing. No, they make the burgers and they take them to the homeless and they do a Bible study while they feed them. My daughter, my son, both involved in high school ministry at their local church, leading small groups. They're wrestling. They're gonna have their first child. Where does high school ministry fit with being 
on staff, I said, kids, this is not the time to quit youth ministry. You've just opened an entire pool of babysitting. Do not quit now. The payoff is just now coming. Katie goes, I never thought of that, Dad. Why do you think we never hardly had to pay for babysitting? We had high school kids lined up for years wanting to watch you kids. Because it's amazing when you invest in young people, that's a way for them to invest back into your kids and into your family. So if you have little ones and you're working on our youth ministry, God bless you. And so ultimately, I wanna close with this. I think that um, for a lot of us, as we think about kids and parenting and what's gonna happen and um, what's our choices and, and what's gonna happen with our kids, ultimately, you just gotta trust God, right? You just gotta finally just let go. And that ultimate letting go often for you, that point you'll hit you is when you send your first one off to college. Has anybody done that yet here? Bill left already. Here's what you're up for, and we'll close with this. Nearly a week ago, Peg and I had a very hard week. Wednesday night, Mike slept downstairs in his room where kids or children belong, and we slept upstairs in ours where moms and dads belong. Thursday night, we were 350 miles away. He was in Ramada 325, and we were in 323 in connecting rooms, and we left the door wide open and talked and laughed together. Friday night, 700 miles from home. He was in 247 and we were in 239, but was just down the balcony and somehow we seemed together. Saturday night, he was in the freshman dorm and we were still in room 239. Sunday night, we were home and he was 700 miles away in that freshman dorm. Now we had been through this before. Robert had gone away to college and we had gathered ourselves together until we had gotten over it mainly because he's married now and he only lives 10 miles away and he comes to visit often. So we thought we know how to handle separation pretty well, but we came away so lonely and so depressed. Oh, our hearts are filled with pride at a fine young man and our minds are filled with memories from tricycles to commencements, but deep down inside somewhere we just ached with loneliness and pain. Someone said, you still have three at home. Three fine kids, there's still plenty of noise, plenty of ball games to go to, plenty of responsibilities, plenty of laughter, plenty of everything, except Mike. And in parental math, five minus one just doesn't equal plenty. And I was thinking about God. He sure has plenty of children, plenty of artists, plenty of singers, and carpenters, and candlestick makers, and preachers, Plenty of everybody except you. And all of them together can never take your place. And there will always be an empty spot in his heart and a vacant chair at his table when you're not home. And if once in a while it seems as if he's crowding you a bit, try to forgive him. It may be one of those nights when he misses you so much. He can hardly stand it. Friends, that's the kind of God that I serve. That's the God who went after the one lost sheep. That's also the God who's the parent of the prodigal and waited for his son to come home. He's the God who says, 
It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So whatever parenting stage you find yourself at, wherever your kids are at today, realize that whatever you're going through with your kids, that maybe, just maybe, through your kids, God has a window into your soul. Amen? Maybe he's teaching you something that the only way you could learn it is through what you're going through with your kids. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this night, for this very attentive audience, very receptive, and I'm so grateful that they came tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You have a homework assignment. The last page, page six, is a little discussion for you to do with your spouse sometime before next Tuesday night. If your spouse wasn't here or you don't have one, then talk to a friend, but work through those questions and uh, we'll see you next week. Discipline, it's on page five. Is there a page six? Page six is, page six is your place to doodle I, or a grocery list. All right, we'll see you next week and uh, thanks for being there. You can invite other people and we'll see you next week. Thanks. And you're bringing popcorn next week. Don't forget. Boop, boop, boop.